We'll read initially in uh, chapter 25. Delighted to see you, dear saints, from other places this evening. You'll uh, completely understand, I know, and forgive me if we don't do a full recap of everything that we've been over in these past evenings. Uh, But safe to say that at the moment we're just uh, at that part of the tabernacle. We've looked at it um, in general on the first two evenings, how it was provided for, how it was prepared, how it's been preserved, how God provided men uh, for its functioning. And uh, we looked uh, at the various positions of things that are there. We're looking now in more detail. And um, last evening we were thinking particularly of the brazen altar. We made one or two comments about the laver as we progressed through the outer court. And uh, this evening we might just say one or two more things about the laver before we then approach what is called the door of the tabernacle and move into the tented structure itself. And uh, uh, hopefully this evening, if I can apportion the time rightly, then uh, we want to look also at the truth of the lampstand, which is on the left-hand side, the south side as we move into the tabernacle, and also the table of showbread. So that's our plan for this evening, if the Lord will. And uh, we're going to read in chapter 25 of Exodus, and... uh, in these opening chapters concerning the tabernacle uh, the direction of movement is not the one we have taken the direction of movement is from the holiest of all and the ark outwards and the purpose of that I'm quite sure is to emphasize to us that all the initiative uh, as far as this great purpose in providing the means by which men could have fellowship with God, all the initiative comes from him. God moves out to man in grace. And so the direction of travel in Exodus 25, 26, 27, it's outward. God is moving out toward men. But then there's a significant difference that later on, when we are reading about the preparation of the tabernacle, it's more that we're moving in. The labor, for example, isn't mentioned when God moves out toward man in grace. No need for purifying where God is concerned. But when man would move in to enjoy communion with God, there is a need for purification. So the laver is mentioned later, but not here. So uh, we're going to read first uh, about the table of showbread, and then we're going to read about the uh, lampstand, but we will deal with them in the reverse order this evening. Chapter 25 then of Exodus and verse 23. Thou shalt also make a table of shittim, wood, acacia wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, and make thereto a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt make unto it a border of an hand breadth round about, And thou shalt make a golden crown to the border thereof, round about. And thou shalt make for it four rings of gold, and put the rings in the four corners that are on the four feet thereof. Over against the border shall the rings be for places of the staves to bear the table. And thou shalt make the staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold, that the table may be borne with them. 
And thou shalt make the dishes thereof, and spoons thereof, and covers thereof, and bowls thereof, to cover with all, of pure gold shalt thou make them. And thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me alway. And thou shalt make a lampstand of pure gold, of beaten work shall the lampstand be made, his shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knops and his flowers shall be of the same. And six branches shall come out of the sides of it, three branches of the lampstand out of the one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side, three bowls made like unto almonds, with a knop and a flower in one branch, and three bowls made like almonds in the other branch, with a knop and a flower, so in the six branches that come out of the candlestick, the lampstand. And in the lampstand shall be four bowls made like unto almonds, with their knops and their flowers, and there shall be a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, according to the six branches that proceed out of the lampstand. The knops and the branches shall be of the same. All it shall be one beaten work of pure gold. And thou shalt make the seven lamps thereof, and they shall light the lamps thereof, that they may give light over against it. And the tongs thereof, and the snuff dishes thereof, shall be of pure gold. Of a talent of pure gold shall he make it with all these vessels, and look that thou make them after their pattern, which was shown thee in the mount. Now we do trust God will bless the reading of his good word this evening, and even though we have asked the Lord to give us freshness of mind, you're probably starting to glaze over a bit with all these almonds and knots and flowers and things like that. You can relax a little, it's not my purpose, uh, other than to comment on the detail, it's not my purpose to go through in tiny and minute detail those things this evening. Let's just take up, if we may, where we left off last evening. And we began by thinking of the fact that, very obviously and clearly, you can see it on the model that's here as well, that uh, was built here in Holborn some while ago. You can see that the, the linen curtains around the perimeter of the whole tabernacle complex, they very clearly form a barrier. There's an outside and there's an inside. That's pretty obvious. And the thing is too that, that all this was visible to the ungodly nations round about the encampment of God's people. So that as they moved through the wilderness, there were others around, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Ammonites, all these kind of people, and uh, all these little tribes, and, and, and most of them hostile to the people of God. And as they looked down, it must have been a very curious sight because they had nothing like it and here was a people chosen by God set apart for God the truth of sanctification they're set apart for God and uh, one thing that would be immediately obvious to the ungodly onlooker was that this was at the very centre of the people's lives that if the whole tabernacle is effectively built around the ark and we'll see God willing tomorrow night probably the ark is a picture of Christ 
But if the whole tabernacle has effectively been ordered and built around the ark, because that's where God begins, and he moves out and he gives all the other instructions, everything takes its bearings from the ark, if that's effectively the centre of the tabernacle, the tabernacle is at the centre of the camp, and all the people are encamped round about. And clearly, when you look at the different pictures and representations that people have tried to make, um, for obvious reasons, they're limited in their canvas, so they will give some shape and idea of the tabernacle, and they'll dot a few tents around it. But remember that the nation that had that tabernacle at the centre of their world was a population the size of the population of Glasgow. It wasn't just one or two little tents around. There was about two million people, if you include the children, in all probability. So it was a vast encampment. And yet everything was ordered, the places where the different tribes took their locations, the places where they pitched their tents. And, and if you were up there in the hills and you were looking down on this encampment of God's people, well, you remember that, that Balaam did that back in the book of Numbers and, and he looked down wanting to curse the people of God but even as he was wanting to curse them so a wonderful blessing flowed out of his lips uh, and there was a very beautiful eulogy to the order of the encampment of God's people it made a deep impression because the world had nothing like it so a very practical point to begin the meeting with tonight what a beautiful illustration of how it should be of the people of God today. See, had this been some great ornate cathedral, some great soaring building, you say, well, we could understand that being at the centre of their lives. But actually, as they looked down, the only covering that they would really see anything much of was the covering of the badger skins, seal skins these kind of waterproof covering that was on it it was pretty unprepossessing it wasn't a great ornate building it was a tent elaborate but it was a tent and they see the linen curtains of the courtyard held up with their ropes and their stays uh, and there was nothing really to attract it wasn't that the people of the world were attracted but they were kind of fascinated by it because very clearly it was at the centre of their lives. And, and one of the pictures, of course, that the tabernacle presents to us. It was God's house. It was the first physical representation of God's house in the earth. And you and I today, members of local assemblies of God's believing people, Christians who meet to the name of the Lord Jesus, Paul writes to Timothy, church at Ephesus and tells him how that, that local assembly has the character of house of God so there's a direct parallel isn't there the principles of this house and the principles of the local assembly are the same the one is physical the other is spiritual but the principles are the same because God hasn't changed so if his desire for this physical house the tabernacle is that it be visibly marked by a sense of holiness and that these people are separated unto him and that there is divine order stamped upon the whole encampment 
How true that should be of you and me today. A people marked by practical holiness. We live very close to the world, don't we, sometimes? And let's be honest, sometimes we think the distance we need from the world and its ways is just enough to keep the brethren off our backs. Well, that's not a good motive at all. And what is it that's going to give you, give me, that real heart desire, not to conform to a set of rules and regulations, but a real desire to live a sanctified life for the glory of God? Is it not, number one, an appreciation, first of all, of the redemptive work of God on my behalf? This is a redeemed people that this encampment is made up of. But then also having an appreciation, not only what God has brought me away from in his redemptive power, but what, what he's brought me unto in his sanctifying work. If God brings a person or a people out of something, it's to bring them in to something better indeed. So can you imagine how it would have been if you had had a family or an individual or a tribe who had been delivered by divine power out of Egypt and there was no way they were ever going to go back there. And yet you imagine if that individual or family or tribe had decided that they, they were just going to keep this structure, this tabernacle and all its order, they were just going to keep it on the periphery of things. And anyone who'd ever thought like that would, would clearly and immediately be moving outside of the divine will for them, but they would also be in a kind of a limbo. Because they've been brought out of what they once had in Egypt, but they're not going in to what God has prepared them for. And so they're just stuck in a wilderness that has got absolutely nothing for them, and they've been spoiled for Egypt and yet they're not possessing what God has prepared for them in the wilderness we often think of them between the Egypt and Canaan but I'm thinking of them now between Egypt and this sanctuary that God wants to have fellowship with them in is it too direct just to pose the question how is your fellowship with God How's your fellowship with divine persons? Is it something we're in the enjoyment of? You know what fellowship is between like-minded believers uh, and the closeness more of fellowship between, say, family members. Now, this tabernacle, its whole purpose, God said, is that I might dwell amongst my people. Uh, and, and in a way that I can't understand but believed to be true, the desire of God to have fellowship with his redeemed people is infinitely greater than ever their desire to have fellowship with him. And God does everything he can in keeping with his righteous standards to move out and prepare a means by which his redeemed can have fellowship with him. What a sadness, what a grief it must be to God and to the Lord who gave his life to save us if at that tremendous cost we have been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness, positionally translated into the kingdom of the Son of his love, and yet day by day we don't want fellowship with him. 
one of the reasons why we sang that lovely hymn take time to be holy the world rushes on have we rushed on so much today that we haven't had time to read yet have we rushed on so fast today that perhaps we didn't even pause just to bless God for ever saving our souls so easy to get used to it isn't it and, and then we get channeled into the way of may I call it assembly Christian life we get channeled into that we know the do's and the don'ts but that's not really fellowship with God is it that's not really fellowship with divine persons so an appreciation of God's redemptive work I need to get back to the cross frequently in my individual experience I need to get back to the cross but then I also need a deeper appreciation of what God has brought me into and this is really what I mean there's different views you can take of the tabernacle I appreciate that but the view we're taking this week is the one where God is making every provision for you and for me to come here and now into the delight of fellowship with himself so henceforth uh, so hence the reason why last evening when we looked at the brazen altar we weren't looking at it from the point of view of the sacrifice of Christ to save you and me that's Exodus 12 that's the Passover that's where we were delivered from under the condemnation of God for our sins pictorially and then chapter 14 where they came through the Red Sea that was how pictorially we were delivered from the bondage of sin as a master now a redeemed people is beginning their approach into the presence of God and the brazen altar is called the altar of burnt offering it's an altar upon which sweet savour offerings are burned and it's all about what Christ is to God the pleasure that he brings to God and, and, and that altar was big enough to contain all the other items of furniture that are there in the tabernacle possibly with the exception of the labour because we don't know its dimensions but in other words every blessing that those other items of furniture are going to speak to us about they can all be contained in that brazen altar in other words the, the, the person and work of Christ embraces every blessing that we have it's why it's the first thing we come up to and those who are saved and sanctified now unto God and practical sanctification should be the outcome of it the first lessons we learn are every blessing we have is in Christ and allied to that we saw that the labour very interesting in itself isn't it the, the omissions of scripture as well as the things that it does tell us we have on the one hand the labour of which descriptively we're told virtually nothing we don't know its shape we don't know its size we don't know how it worked we don't know how it was carried we're just told that there was a laver with its foot and it contained water and it was for the priestly, the priestly people uh, to wash hands and feet and I suppose the very fact that there's no detail given is to concentrate our minds on the essential need for purification that, that anything in the work of God and anything uh, that would hamper me from going on in fellowship with God 
has to be cleansed. There's one thing very sure, and you know it as a Christian, whether you're newly saved or been donkey's years on the road. We don't talk about it much. But the one thing that will seriously hamper my fellowship and enjoyment of God is unconfessed sin. And in a world with its standards as the way they are, it's very easy for us to learn to tolerate a degree of sin in ourselves. But that labour, it's as though the Spirit of God is telling us, and I speak reverently, it's as though the Spirit of God is saying, look, I don't want you to be occupied with how big it is, how tall it is, what shape it is. I want you to concentrate on the demand for purity. And that labour was put there between the brazen altar and the tabernacle proper, the tented structure, and before a priest could ever move in, in priestly service, into the presence of God, uh, and begin to enjoy all the blessings of divine fellowship, then purification is essential. John takes it up in his first epistle, and John speaks of the fact that though our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ, the one thing that will seriously damage and spoil that fellowship is sin. Hence he tells us that if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. It's John who tells us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not a gospel text. That's a verse for believers. And so the Bible clearly shows us that if I learn to tolerate sin in myself, it will greatly hamper my enjoyment of fellowship with God. In fact, how seriously God takes it was in the verses we read concerning the labor last night that the water in the laver was used for the priest to wash his hands and his feet, that he die not. There's nothing you can do in this country today to earn the death sentence. More's the pity, I think, personally. Nothing you can do in this country to earn the death sentence today. But a righteous God said, if a priestly man walks straight past that laver and fails to remove the defilement that's on him, he'll die. Thank God we live in a day of grace. Because if these principles were really applied as strictly as that in the day that we're living, I don't think there'd be many of us in this meeting and the platform would certainly be empty. So we're just trying to get a sense now of the holiness of God that stamps everything about this. That, that, that curtain that goes all around the perimeter of the tabernacle, that laver that stands boldly at the center of the court, it's all telling us that God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. And we delude ourselves. We delude ourselves if we fall into the trap of thinking that God will tolerate in me what he won't tolerate in the ungodly. Grace doesn't make us immune to the government of God. So sin has to be judged in the life 
And it has to be recognised to be there. Now how's that? Well, isn't it interesting that the only other detail we have of the labour is that it was made of the looking glasses of the women who assembled outside the tabernacle. And the looking glass, the mirror, that's what reflects self, isn't it? You think you might have that dreaded piece of spinach between the teeth? You look in the mirror. You think there might be a blemish? You look in the mirror. You're looking for some smudge, some, I don't know, anything. You look in the mirror. And the mirror is telling us about self. Now, effectively, it would teach me, God had said to his people, listen, take the mirror away. I don't want you occupied with self, but you can use those looking glasses to make the laver that will contain the water for purification. You're going to use a different standard now. It's not a matter of you looking on the outward appearance and judging whether anything needs to be put right or removed. God said, I'll give you a new standard. And I believe that's what we have in the lampstand. So, moving past the brazen altar, where we recognize that all our blessings are contained in the acceptability of Christ before God. We're accepted in the beloved. We move then, the labor stands there, we, have, we can't avoid it, it's right there in the path between the altar and the door into the tabernacle. The only way that it could be avoided and not used would be a deliberate act of rebellion. And that's why God said that any priest who dared to do that, dead. Not so much the defilement that's on him, but it's the sheer rebellion, the carelessness, that he would bring defilement into that sanctuary of God. So the labour is there. It confronts the man with his need for purification. But now he comes to the door, that heavy hanging made of the linen and the blue and the purple and the scarlet. And something of the structure of it will perhaps illustrate tomorrow, God willing. So we needn't be too concerned about the physical arrangement just now. But he's going to go through that heavy hanging, which is called the door. And immediately he's going to be in the sanctuary. We thought a little on a previous evening of the tremendous difference that he would immediately notice. As that heavy drape uh, folded again behind him, the noise, the smell, the sight, everything of the outer court is now excluded. Out there where there was brass, speaking of judgment, now he's looking at gold. And uh, there's a, an atmosphere within the sanctuary that is immediately redolent of heaven itself. It's calm, it's still, it's fragrant. There's the incense on the altar of incense up against the veil. There's the smell of that fresh bread from the table of showbread. There's the slight smell of the olive oil coming from the lampstand. And so we turn our attention to that lampstand. Most of you have seen the pictures, the so-called menorah, that's the Hebrew word used for it. And uh, you notice as we read, 
quite intentionally I didn't read candlestick, I read lampstand. The main difference being, of course, that, well, obviously a candlestick holds a candle. And a candle gives off light, but, but as it gives off light, it consumes itself. And eventually you don't have a candle left. But a lampstand doesn't do that. A lampstand is replenished with oil. And it's the oil and the wick that is in it that gives off the light. But then we read very interestingly, uh, just as we uh, got to verse 37 of chapter 25, Thou shalt make the seven lamps thereof, and they shall light the lamps thereof, that they may give light over against it. Or, that, as your margin says, that they may give light over against the face of it. There's two thoughts with the light that is shed from this lampstand. Number one, is that the Bible's telling us that the purpose of this lamp is to shine light over against itself. So that's quite curious, isn't it? Because we would normally use a lamp, uh, some nice ornate table lamp, or, or, or some kind of occasional lamp like that, because you want to light up that little corner, you want to shed a bit of light on that nice piece of furniture, and, and you use a lamp to illuminate something else. But this lampstand illuminates itself. It does incidentally, because of its proximity to the table, it lights it as well. But the point is, the Bible never says that the lampstand is there to illuminate the sanctuary. That's not its purpose. It illuminates itself and it illuminates the table. What does illuminate the sanctuary, as we thought on a previous evening, is that the resident glory in the holiest of all is shining through the veil and bathing the sanctuary in divine light that is throwing all the beauty of that veil into relief. And we thought of how that reflects 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and the light of the knowledge of the glory of God being seen in the face of Jesus Christ. So then, what would this be a picture of, this lampstand? Read a lot of commentaries, and uh, most of them will talk about the church. And they will say how that there is this base, and then there is um, uh, the centre lampstand, and then there's branches coming out of it, and, and uh, they'll link it with Revelation chapter 1 and scriptures like this, and they'll bring the church out of the whole thing. Now, that might be a nice little kind of sideline application, that might be. I don't think it fits the context of the tabernacle, personally. Because what, it's, uh, what the whole thing is a picture of is how is God bringing you and me as redeemed people into the closeness of fellowship with himself. All these different steps are provisions that God has made to preserve his own holy standards and yet bring a sinner redeemed by grace into his courts. In fact, you've probably heard it said that number five is a picture of divine grace. Never too struck on all those numerals personally, but uh, it is interesting when you just see how many fives or multiples of five there are in the tabernacle. If indeed five would speak of divine grace, then almost everything in the tabernacle 
is a multiple of five. And grace is stamped upon the whole thing. It's how God is bringing us into fellowship with himself. And so, I don't think it exactly fits that the lampstand would be a picture of the church. I'll tell you what I do think it's a picture of, is the word of God. Because, in contrast to that labour, of which we have virtually no detail at all, look at the detail we read about in chapter 25. From verse number 31, right the way down to verse number 40. And the most of it is all about these little details of almonds and flowers and bowls and knops and all these kind of things. Now, it's not our purpose to try and build a representation of this thing. But very clearly and obviously we can see that where all detail is excluded from the labour... A tremendous amount of detail is told us about this lampstand. Now, if we visualise that central shaft uh, and uh, the higher or the highest of the lampstands coming up, the branch coming up through the centre of it, and then out from it, three other branches on either side. What the different knops and the, cup, the almond-shaped cups. That, that, with respect to the Word of God, that's not our problem at the moment. I'm just thinking about the broad shape of it. And you imagine you go and you buy something like that. I mean, we're not talking Argos or something. You know, we're talking at least John Lewis or something like this. You know, it's, it's something that is well-made, it's, it's stylish, it's, it's well-built. How would you get it? If it came, even if it was made up, somebody get in, and it's quite big, you know, somebody brought it and, and, and put it in front of you. You would say, well, take that centre shaft, it seems that there's the, the, the actual lamps on the top, these little almond-shaped cups, and then there's kind of flowers, probably lilies and things like that, and then there's these knops, whatever they are, they might have been spheres, they might have been leaves. Very ornate, that's the thing. So you say, I know how they've made that. I know how they've made that. There's a thread on the top of it, and you unscrew that bit, and then you unscrew that bit, and, and, and they, they make up the centre bit, and then, of course, the branches, they'll unscrew from the centre bit, and you'll probably be able to take all the different... That's how they've made it. And if you have to make it up, it'll come in all these little polythene bags, and you'll sort it all out, and you'll screw all the big bits in, and then you'll put all... And there it is. Except that this was beaten out of one piece of gold. It was beaten out of one piece of gold. Small wonder, a holy Ab and Bezalel needed Holy Spirit power to be able to do what they did. The channels that carried the oil, whatever it was that held the wicks, everything that was needed to make those things burn evenly, those intricate flowers and almonds and all the detail that we've read of it beaten out by hand out of one piece I knew a brother he was an overseer in the assembly where we went when we were first married and uh, he was um, a goldsmith and a silversmith and I remember him showing me in his little workshop one day 
uh, a piece of gold. He gave me a piece of gold. And he says, now you just start beating that out. And it was just like a small ballpain hammer. And I began just to beat it out. And he says, make it as, you know, fairly thin. So you beat it and you beat it. Uh, and then it became so malleable that it was as bendy as a piece of paper. Because as you're beating it, you're, well, I don't know the whole metallurgy of it, but as you're beating it, you're, you're taking a lot of the strength away out of it. It just becomes very loose, a bit like lead foil or something like that. So if you've got gold and you're, you're beating out, I, I can't begin to imagine how they did it. All the ornate base work, and then the central shaft, and then the, the different lampstands coming out from it, and all the intricate detail, and, and they're beating it away to make the shape and the form of it, but if they do it too much, the whole thing would just fold in like soft chocolate. Isn't it remarkable, isn't it? So then I think how that the oil, when it's lit, and the light is over against itself. Now the olive oil is always a picture of the Spirit of God. Zechariah chapter 4 will make that very clear for you. So in Zechariah 4, the early verses, verses 1 to 6, or something like that, that's where you'll read how that, that olive oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. So now, the Spirit of God, in picture, is throwing light over this tremendously ornate structure, and it's inexplicable how it ever came into being. If the mirror has been discarded outside, if the principle now is one of purity and holiness that no mirror can ever reflect, the mirror can only show me the outer man. Forget the mirror, it's there in the labour. Now I come into the sanctuary of God and I find here the word of God. Think of it. Forty different authors? At least hundreds of years in the writing men in different countries different languages sometimes Hebrew and Chaldean and Greek and who is it coordinated and brought this marvellous book together so that there is total harmony throughout it one part with another this isn't a plug it's just an explanation I remember producing the first copy of Scripture Sevens. The idea being, 52 authors, they each write a week of studies, and there it is, it's yours, a year's study in a book. It was like herding cats. They can't count, most brethren can't count. 400 words, please. I think 980 was one of the closer ones. And, and so I'm not trying to be flippant, but that's in a day where we've got computers, phones, word processors, men in the same day and generation, we can speak to each other, we can do it all like that, and it's very difficult to make it work. And here we've got 66 books, 40 different authors, hundreds of years between them, and the harmony and the coordination is absolutely amazing. Inexplicable except that the Spirit of God is the author. But what does the Spirit of God do? The one who made it, the one who is the author of it, he now sheds light over against itself. So that the interpreter of the Word of God is the Spirit of God. Young brother, 
young sister as you're taking an interest in studying your Bible and uh, the tendency can easily be read the passage once reach for the commentary I'm not saying you shouldn't do that but wouldn't it be a lot better if as you read your Bible and you come to a bit that you don't understand why go to some human commentator when without being irreverent you can just speak to the author you can go to the author of this book and that's why we say to pray over your Bible and to read it it's the living word of God and the spirit of God who wrote it is the best person to explain it and he'll do that and you pray over the word of God and seek for that divine illumination show me thy word teach me it show me Christ in it and that's the ministry that the spirit of God has got for the people of God today so if I want to know how is my holy standing relative to moving in to the sanctuary to have fellowship with God do I use a mirror contrary to strong brethren tradition I am being a bit naughty now but, but it's not all about wearing a suit and a tie to be able to come into the sanctuary these things are outward I'm, I'm not denigrating them and clearly I'm wearing them so you know what I think about it but, but nevertheless it's, it's perfectly right that we come into the presence of God in an outwardly fitting way I'm, I'm not suggesting anything else but that's not the final criterion Am I serious about enjoying personal fellowship with God? In which case, no mirror is going to reflect what is in the inside of me. But the Word of God will. The Word of God, read in the light of the Spirit of God, it will cut across my path. It will bring to my attention things that need to be dealt with. It is quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it can sort out things within my mind and within my heart. And so that lampstand is an essential part of the sanctuary experience. We move in the light of the revealed word of God. And very importantly, if we fail to submit to it, we'll not make further progress. The Lord Jesus enunciated a principle when he began to speak in parables in Matthew chapter 13. And his disciples said to him, why are you speaking in parables now? You haven't done that before. And the Lord said, the purpose of the parable is for those who've got ears to hear, it will explain divine truth. But for those who have closed their ears, well, it will just rob them of whatever knowledge they ever had. Because he said, the principle is this. To him that hath shall be given. But to him that hath not shall be taken away even that he hath. So now if the word of God is challenging you about some aspect of your life, your behaviour, and you refuse to conform to it, you'll get no further light and no further blessing until you do submit. And that's the way we make progress in divine things. So as we come into the glory of the sanctuary, we allow ourselves to be bathed in the soft but very pure and uh, light of the, of the lampstand. That the Spirit of God is throwing light over against it. 
so that we might be able to understand who we are and what we are and make the adjustments needed before a holy God. But it also does throw light over against the table of showbread. A few comments on that, God willing, and then I want to combine other thoughts with the table of showbread with two other items of furniture uh, tomorrow evening, and I'll explain why they're linked. Um, The table and the altar of incense, which stands over by the veil, and the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the holiest of all, those three items of furniture, you know, are very different from the other four. Because these three items, the table, the altar of incense, the Ark, they're all made of wood overlaid with gold. And if the wood speaks in its incorruptibility of the sinless humanity of Christ, and I think that's a perfectly valid and uh, familiar idea, the wood speaks of, of Christ in all his perfect humanity and sinlessness, but that is now overlaid with gold. Now, if these things were figurative of the Lord Jesus when he was here, you would expect the gold to be overlaid with wood, the deity of Christ overlaid with the wood of his humanity. But no, these items are made of wood overlaid with gold. So it's not speaking to us about Christ when he was here, it's speaking to us about the Lord now that he's gone above. Now that he's a man in the glory. Now that he's in the glory of heaven again. A lovely picture, simple picture, of wood being overlaid with gold. I think one of the ways you can see that that would be a correct picture is when you come to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and uh, the two replacement tables of stone are being given to Moses. The first ones having been broken. God said, I'll give you these two new tables of stone and see you lay them up in an ark. An ark of wood. 1 Kings 6 makes it very clear that that ark is this ark of the tabernacle. It's overlaid with gold, wood overlaid with gold. But the thing is, in Deuteronomy 10, no gold is mentioned. It's exactly the same ark, but the very fact gold isn't mentioned, it's a picture of Christ in his life. You see that? It's just the wood. It's the humanity of Christ. How accurate wonderfully precise this book is but here in the tabernacle the table we're thinking about uh, it's, it's made of wood overlaid with gold but notice also that it and the other two items that are made in the same way they also have crowns so they're teaching us that, that these uh, are portraying something about the person and work of Christ now that he's gone home to heaven and he's crowned, and he's glorified. And they're speaking about ministries which the Lord performs on our behalf now to bring us into fellowship with God, and they are ministries that he couldn't perform when he was here on earth. Being on earth has fitted him for the offices and the ministries that he now performs as a man in heaven. All that just by wood being overlaid with gold, and crowned. 
You'll notice in our reading, verse 24, verse 25, that the table actually has two crowns. So it's giving us a dual ministry of Christ. And uh, the one of them here in this chapter is explained to us in verse number 30. Thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me alway. So, well, what's that about? Well, now, a literal translation of this showbread is the bread of the faces. The bread of the faces. You see, you'll remember that, that because of the failure of the nation, who God intended always to be a kingdom of priests, because of the failure of the nation, priesthood had, had fallen now just to one family of one tribe. The family of Aaron in the tribe of Levi. It was limited just to those people. So if you were of the tribe of Dan, tribe of Reuben, you were never going to see this. You were never going to go into that sanctuary. You had to be a priest to go into the sanctuary. But you see, God very kindly, very graciously made provision for that. And he said, now, as you go into the sanctuary on that north side, on the right-hand side there, there's a table. Oh, and its height, by the way, is exactly the same height as the grating in that brazen altar out there in the court. So it's showing that on the same level there is the grating where the sacrifice that is brought uh, in infinite pleasure to God where the sacrifice was burned at the same height as the table of showbread and as you go into the holiest of all the mercy seat is at the same height as well. Lovely teaching in themselves. Now we have this table. Now you've seen pictures of it, I'm sure, and again they're very varied. It seems that one of the most popular is, again I'm not being intentionally flippant, I'm just trying to be illustrative, it's almost like a pile of poppadoms or, you know, chapatis in an Indian restaurant. A pile of six and a pile of six. Now that doesn't do any justice at all to the teaching of the thing. Because the whole point is, you see, that, that on that table there's going to be 12 identical loaves. And they're the bread of the faces. Because there's 12, there's clearly one for each tribe. So the tribes that will never come into the sanctuary are nevertheless represented in the sanctuary. Because God wants to make this point clear. That when it comes to fellowship with himself, there is not an elite like there is in the religions of the world, some kind of uh, priestly caste, the gurus, the sadhus, the people who've got the knowledge that John is so strong about in his first epistle. No, God is making the point, look, every one of my redeemed is precious to me. So twelve identical loaves are sitting there upon the table. But when you read the scripture and find out how much flour went into one of those loaves, you realise it's not some little chapati thing. In fact, it would make a loaf at least the size. I guess you can easily imagine, you know, when you go walking out of Tesco, you suddenly think, oh, I need screen wash for the car. You know, and you, you get a plastic thing of screen wash about that size. That's the minimum size that one of those loaves would have been. Just through the volume of the flour. 
So these loaves were, were stacked together, all on the one level, that's on the level of the grating of the brazen altar, it's on the level of the mercy seat, and each one of those loaves is presenting the face of the tribes before the face of God. And the teaching is lovely. It tells me that whoever you are, brother or sister, old or young, newly saved, or a long time on the road, God has no favorites. He has no favorites. See, I, I, I like to think, I don't think it's just sentimental. I like to think that when God saved me, that it was as though the Lord Jesus, a man in heaven, he's there at the right hand of the majesty on high. And when God saved me by his grace, the Lord presented me personally before the face of God. As another tribute to his suffering. Just another spoil of the triumph that he wrought at Calvary. Heaven's not unmoved by the salvation of a soul. All God's purpose was geared toward that. Everything in the death of Christ was geared toward that. Young saints particularly. I remember what it was like. And, and, and very often in an assembly you begin to feel, I'm just an also ram. There's nothing particular for me to do. And, and look at these people, they can do that. And I can do this. And I've got such problems in my Christian life. And Forget it all. That blessed man with the nail prints in his hand has presented you personally before the face of God. And he continues to do that. Hell points an accusing finger at you. That man who gave his life to save yours says you're one of mine. And he presents every one of us. Don't let's put each other on some kind of imaginary pedestal at all. We do, all of us, need to learn genuine humility before God. And to see that every one of us, from Paul the Apostle right down to the simplest of the saints presented equally before the face of God. What a precious truth it is, isn't it? And God says, that's going to be the basis of my fellowship with you. I'm not going to give more audience time to this one or that one. There's no favorites. You are all in Christ, utterly, fully qualified to enter into precious fellowship with God. We're going to have to leave it there tonight. But the first crown on that table is not just there for decoration. It goes around that table to make sure that none of those loaves will ever be dislodged. And they're kept there perpetually fresh because we'll see as we begin tomorrow night, God willing, that the secondary function of the table when we come to the book of Leviticus is not just for presentation, it's for provision because the very bread that's on it the priests are going to feed upon a lovely picture of us feeding upon Christ, the true bread of life. So let's leave the thought tonight with that lovely truth of presentation when it comes to the bread of the faces. The hymn writer has said, Near, so very near to God, nearer I cannot be, for in the person of his Son, I am as near as he. Dear, so very dear to God, dearer I cannot be, 
the love wherewith he loves the Son, such is his love for me. John says, as he is in this world, so are we. Isn't there a tremendous dignity to being saved? To be counted amongst the redeemed of the Lord. And this is part of the provision God has made to bring those he has redeemed into the closeness and the warmth of fellowship with himself. Excuse me for taking five minutes of your time tonight.